Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening today, and thank you for always showing up. I I love that we can get this connection going, and you're jumping into your car or your home doing something, and maybe maybe you podcast this. And if you've not downloaded the app, not a bad idea to do that. You can go to your favorite uh, Google or Apple store and download the Faith Radio app, and then once you open it, it just starts streaming, which is kind of cool. And then you can go to any one of the programs. I prefer you go to mine first. And then you can download any programs you might have missed. So uh, we're, I'm going to have John Stone Street on in just a minute. He's an awfully smart man. I appreciate him and the way he thinks. Makes me think of Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, Come now, let's settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Kind of sounds like the direct approach to me. Anyway, let's uh, take a little break, and we come back. We'll uh, enjoy some time with John Stone Street. Looking forward to that. Thanks again for listening. Be right back. Truth Study Bible combines God's Word and the easy-to-read CSB translation with thoughtfully designed resources that make it easier to understand. Featuring timelines, charts, maps, multiple reading plans, and wide margins for note-taking, the He Reads Truth Study Bible will inspire men to spend daily time in the Scriptures, increase biblical literacy, and build a deeper relationship with God. We're giving away one He Reads Truth Study Bible each week this month. Enter to win at MyFaithRadio.com. Before you launch into another busy day, get grounded in God's Word with the Faith Radio verse of the day. You can have a Bible verse sent to your phone or to your email address. For the email, visit MyFaithRadio.com and click on Verse of the Day under the Subscriptions tab. To receive it as a daily text message, text the word VERSE to 555-888. That's VERSE to 555-888. Get daily hope and encouragement with the Faith Radio verse of the day. You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. As you listen to this network, you always hear John Stone Street. Uh, He is a regular contributor on uh, the network and also president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. We're awfully glad to have him on. We're talking today about his new book called Life, Marriage, and Religious Liberty, What Belongs to God, What Belongs to Caesar. John, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be on with you. Thank you so much for saying that. I know the list of contributors to this uh, book are many well-known names, and it's uh, it's quite a list. So, talk about the collabor- the collaborative process you did on this book. Well, you know, ten years ago, uh, Chuck Colson and Timothy George, who's the dean of Beeson Divinity School in Alabama, and and Robert George, which is one of really one of the top Christian intellectuals on the planet at Princeton, they collaborated on a document 
that outline Christian conviction on faith, um, faith and culture, specifically around the areas of life, marriage, and religious liberty. And, and there was a lot of people that um, signed on. In fact, 500,000 Americans signed the Manhattan Declaration, which was basically a statement of Christian conscience that no matter what changes in the law, no matter what changes in the culture, when it comes to those three fundamental issues, uh, this is where we will stand as Christians. And so to reflect back on that 10 years later, it was such a kind of an important moment and a, a prophetic moment, really, uh, to help the church think through where it was headed. And the last 10 years certainly have been a whirlwind on those three issues. And so, um, you know, it was it was uh, amazing the amount of people who were willing and ready to weigh in on what that same Christian conviction looks like today. A lot has changed in the last 10 years, and uh, the Manhattan Declaration has proven to be prophetic. And so, um, Johnny Erickson Tata and, and Randy Alcorn and Trevin Wax and, uh, you know, so many other uh, believers uh, and thought leaders from around the country, Russell Moore and so on, uh, Jim, uh, uh, Rick Warren and, and, and many others, when uh, when we asked, they, they jumped at the opportunity to reflect on what Christian conviction looks like in this cultural moment. John, I would love to... Uh have you tell our listeners a little bit about um, some of the the principal sections of your book? And in, in section one, you talk about life, and and let's talk why life at all stages belongs to God and not to the state. Well, you know, the, probably the most important line I think of the Manhattan Declaration when it was authored back ten years ago was its very last line, which said, you know, we will ungrudgingly render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, mm-hmm. but we can never render to Caesar what belongs to God. And that's uh, an enormously important idea, because today in our world, faith is often talked about as if it's a personal, private conviction, as if the only thing that really belongs to God is my own heart. And, you know, Christianity doesn't really speak publicly to the world about kind of real things, true things. And that's a very important observation, that no matter where the state lands on the sanctity of life, um, uh, you know, whether we're talking about unborn life as we are in our culture or maybe life of a different stage or race or disability, level of disability, uh, as we've seen throughout history, that ultimately, no, God is the author of life, and the state's not the highest thing. Uh, the same thing's true, really, with marriage. Um, that you know, when the Manhattan Declaration was written ten years ago, um, we had Roe v. Wade around for a long time, but we hadn't yet had Obergefell, the decision that mandated same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. and basically told people of faith, "No, listen, you've got to, you know, get on board with this new agenda on marriage." But again, marriage isn't something that the state invented. Marriage is something that belongs ultimately to God, and so does our conscience. And so life especially, because God is the author of life, and it doesn't matter. Uh, That doesn't change even if um, our state can tell people, for example, that – you know, as long as it's before 20 weeks or, you know, 18 weeks or 11 weeks or whatever, then unborn life somehow belongs to us. It doesn't. It, it ultimately belongs to God, and it has to be protected. So, John, as we now head into uh, 10 years since the Manhattan Declaration was signed, how is the Church doing it, defending uh, either all stages of life and, and some of the uh, issues going on with marriage? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think 
10 years ago, if you'd have said, hey, listen, you know, 10 years from now, the Roe v. Wade could be back in play. And we could literally see a time when that decision is going to be reversed. I, I think people would have thought it crazy to think that. Mm-hmm. But here we are. And it, it has a lot to do with kind of these predictions of historical inevitability that often come at Christians, you know, like, oh, well, no, you know, your Bible says this or, you know, you've always believed this. But, you know, we've evolved beyond that. We've progressed morally into a new stage. And, and so those sort of arguments are used to make us feel dumb and they're used to really make us comply. And I think the the life issue is a tremendous example of, listen, there's really no such thing as being on the wrong side of history. What we need to be concerned about is being on the wrong side of what's right. And um, and so I, I see some tremendous progress in the area of life. Now, there's certainly big challenges ahead. You know, if if on a legal issue Roe v. Wade gets overturned, um, that's one thing. But what we are ultimately hoping to see is Roe v. Wade or abortion to go into the category of slavery throughout history. That's not just illegal. It's just unthinkable. It's just one of the great evils of human history that – you know, that have been dealt with. And, and, and so I, I see that issue going in the right direction. On the flip side, I think, you know, marriage is in big trouble in America. And, and not just because there have been new definitions legally, you know, of same-sex marriage or no-fault divorce or something like that, but ultimately because we don't understand the, 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 the importance of marriage to, um, to, to society and that this is one of the ways that God had planned to build his world. I mean, if you look at the pages of Scripture, it literally begins with a wedding and ends with a wedding. I mean, mm-hmm. the story of the Bible from the beginning of the end is the story between two weddings. And so that's a, um, a, a something that I think the church is desperately struggling with, as is most of Western civilization right now. John, we're in a lot of trouble when the definition of words start to change. Well, that's right. And in each of those issues, that's what we're dealing with, um, you know, the definition of life. It's certainly an issue that's been up in the air for a long time. But, you know, when it comes to redefining marriage, that has actually thrown other words like gender and male and female, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and conscience and things like that. All of that's been thrown up in the air. And the meaning of words uh, is, a, is an extremely important thing. And it, it, it's important that, that Christians are very clear on when we use the terms, you know, faith and truth and life and conviction, that we, we, we not only are using words, but we have a clear definition in mind as well. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the way that uh, redefining gender is, is taking place and kids are being taught that gender doesn't exist, um, Christians re- basically reject that premise. So how do we de- defend that truth in a world that's crazier by the day? Well, you know, that's a really important question, and and again, the book is less about how do we defend what's true, although there's a lot of help in there about Mm -hmm. how to articulate these things and so on. But it's like, you know, listen, even if the whole world calls, you know, wrong right and right wrong, Christians are not bound to state pressures. And and this is a new generation, but I think – sorry, a new time in history, but I think it's it's the new normal, and and we join our brothers and sisters where – to be outside of culture is to face um, some real social consequence. You know, it's one thing to be considered, you know, traditional and outdated and quaint and, you know, old-fashioned. That's one thing. But to be considered evil, to be considered wrong, because we are testifying to the truth of, you know, whatever, whether it's the definition of life or whether it's, the, you know, the, the ultimate uh, way that our conscience belongs to God or whatever, 
um, that's the new place that we're at is, is how do we, um, no matter what the level of cultural pressure, how do we um, understand and stand on what's true? And then how do we articulate those convictions to a world? And sometimes we've got to start from scratch. And when it comes to the rethinking of gender and marriage and all that sort of stuff, we certainly have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. John, are we in a, in a new era of uncertainty and denial of reality? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, Romans 1 paints a pretty clear picture that since the fall, that's kind of the, yeah, the common state of true. man is to basically deny reality by our wickedness. But but you're right. I mean, it comes at different levels. Um, you know, it, it, it's one thing to deny that there's such a thing as right and wrong. There's another thing to deny that there's such a thing as biological reality. I mean, now you're not even fiddling with a moral decision, mm-hmm. which is unseen. Now we're actually rejecting observable realities as if they have nothing to do with foundational human activities like marriage or having children or building a society. And, and, and you know, there's a great line from Dallas Willard. He said, you know, you can't step off the roof and then choose not to hit the ground. <laughs> and so, yes, I mean, when we're dealing with these sorts of issues, you know, Christians stand on what we believe about these things, not just because we want to be right or we want to be belligerent and, and, and you know, contrarian. You know, we do it because reality is the way that the world works, and bad ideas about reality will have victims. Uh, and we want to actually love our neighbor well. And one of the ways we love our neighbor is by not compromising on things that we can't compromise on. Mm-hmm. John Stonestreet is my guest. He and David Dockery wrote a book called Life, Marriage, and Religious Liberty. This is a book you need to get your hands on. We're going to take a little break, and we'll come back lots more with John. You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation. Welcome back to the show. I have on our guest line John Stone Street. You know him. He's the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's an author and speaker and apologetics and all-around great guy. John, as we look at just the, the changes that are going on in life, marriage, and religious liberty, and we look at just um, some of the ways in which we are told we have to now think, which is just uh, not going to work for Christians— I mean, I, uh, when I look at some of the uh, transgender athletes that are cleaning up in competitive uh, races and um, and strength competitions, does anybody scratch their head and go, "Come on, this just doesn't fly"? Well, I, I think there's a uh, you know a, one of the truths of Scripture is that it's, there's a remarkable level to which we can engage in, in self-deception and then self-rationalization. Um, you know, one could ask the same question about life. I mean, it's one thing to believe, well, it's not really a human being before the age of ultrasound, but now we have ultrasound, mm-hmm. um, and we're looking at it. We're looking at this quote-unquote clump of cells, um, and we're watching it come alive. Not only that, but we have an unbelievable um, um, uh, understanding of embryology and, and DNA and, and the sort of creature these things are, and yet we're still willing to – um, sacrifice these children on the altar of our sexual autonomy. So there's a level to which, uh, you know, the, the, that's that's pretty devastating to which humans can get and denying what's true and what's good. We we look at the great evils of history and somehow we think we're well beyond that, but we're not because we're just as apt to self-deception as any other generation. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the ability to look at, you know, 4D ultrasound pictures, much less 3D ultrasound pictures, mm-hmm. 
and and to deny the basic humanity to basically sacrifice those children on the altar of kind of our own autonomy and then to you know light up the uh you know the freedom tower in celebration of our laws that mm. enabled i mean it's it's just really an, an amazing thing and again it's one thing for christians to live in a culture where we're called quaint it's another thing to live in a culture where we're so far out of step that we're called evil for not basically um, celebrating uh, that which is evil. And and this is a new reality, and that's really what we wanted to get at with the book is to say, look, Christian, where are you going to stand and why? And um, that's that was the purpose of the Manhattan Declaration, and it was worth revisiting now 10 years later. Mm-hmm. John, do you ever think in, in some of the transgender movement that that we one thing we can never factor in is any kind of mental health issues. I mean, if there was a eighty-eight pound well, woman I, in the hospital with yeah. anorexia and she said she was fat, would we just agree with her? No, that's a great question. I think that 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 again, it reveals a level of um, of really of, uh, of self deception because there are ways since the sexual revolution um, that we have treated air, issues of sex of sex and bodily autonomy and so on that we would never do with any sort of other disorder or any sort of other behavior. Um, there's a kind of a get out of jail free card. I mm-hmm. mean, it, it, it's is. really a bizarre thing. Yeah. And you mentioned the athletics. I mean, that's not a, that, that's a serious thing as well, where, you know, we have spent the last two years coming to reckon with the way women have been um, oppressed. Uh, women have been, you know, undermined, silenced, and yet, it's okay in our culture to still silence and to oppress and to disenfranchise one group of women. And that's, you know, women who, um, who are, who aren't willing to go along with the party line when it comes to transgenderism or abortion. Um, you know, the CNN did a piece, uh, over the weekend, which said something along the lines of, you know, here are the reasons women have abortion. And, you know, you kind of want to tweet out and say, well, where's your follow-up piece on here's the reason that women don't have abortions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would never let a man uh, steal a woman's, um, uh, you know, salary or, uh, you know, position. I mean, all of that would be a cause for a very quick lawsuit. And yet we hear we have teenage and college-age women athletes who's, you know, being disenfranchised and stolen from you know, on the altar of a gender ideology, which is observably problematic. Um, And again, it goes to the level of the sort of cultural moment we live in. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to cave on this or are we going to stand strong because we love God and we love our neighbor? Well, John, what about when believers are faced with some of these uh, questions? They're concerned about coming across as unloving towards those that they disagree with. So how would you encourage us to remain faithful and remain loving at the same time? Well, I, I think that you know the question of whether we are loving our neighbors um, as we're disagreeing with them is something that we have to really reckon with because we can be jerks about our position. We can be mad because we're losing you know, cultural influence or mm-hmm. we're losing this or that or the other. And what needs to greatly disturb us is the glory of God being compromised and what it's doing to, to, to people. And we often say around the Colson Center, you know, ideas have consequences, bad ideas have victims. And if we love our neighbors, we need to care about the ideas that are victimizing them. We have to. 
And so that's the first thing is I think we need to do some introspection and say, look, am I, am, am I speaking up here out of love or am I speaking up here out of anger or something else? Uh, the second thing is I think we need to get kind of tactically better. Um, it would be great if every time, you know, people thought of Christians in our culture, they would think to themselves, yeah, those Christians are bigots except for that guy. <laughs> that Christian right there, he really is a loving, caring person. Mm-hmm. And I, I think if everyone had an exception, we would change what what is unfair, often unfair and really bad branding that the church has. And then I also think we need to have a strategic improvement. Uh, I often think we, we uh, miss out on the strategy that Jesus often used when someone came to him with a challenge or a question is he would rarely just kind of spout an answer back. More often than not, he would engage that other person by asking a, you know, a better question. And I think Christians need to become really good question askers, particularly about the definition of words and about the reasons that people believe what they believe and about the consequences, the inevitable consequences of certain behaviors or, or ideas. And, and this Christians should be the best conversationalists that there are. Um, and, and, and so that, that's a skill uh, that we can develop. And thankfully, there's a lot of organizations uh, and a lot of ministries out there that can help you develop talking points and, 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 and enable you to have those conversations and to not shy away from it. Um, and I think we, this has got to be a priority for us. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now it's not, and it needs to be. Yeah. Well, religious freedom certainly matters a, a ton. And how do we answer the challenges to religious freedom? Well, I think, first of all, we need to realize that what used to be considered a good is now be considered a bad. That's and That's true. A, that's recognizing our cultural moment. I mean, mm-hmm. even in 2009, when the Manhattan Declaration was written, it was written um, around uh, this kind of assumption that Christianity and, and religious liberty is an assumed good. And now religious liberty is often you know, taken as a code word for discrimination. And I, so I think we need to articulate why we don't want people's consciences enslaved by the state. Why it might be messy for people to have freedom of belief, uh, but we want them to be able to exercise those beliefs. I think we need to be able to articulate why America has brought, you know, for example, good to the world because we've had religious liberty as kind of the first freedom. Um, and also, I think we need to be willing to stand up when it's not just a, a Christian's religious freedom that's being compromised. We're going to have to stand up for the religious freedom of everyone. Because although obviously we ultimately want everyone to believe in Jesus, the, the fundamental, the more fundamental truth about how they can come to believe in Jesus without being coerced is that ultimately our consciences are responsible to God and not to whoever is in power. Thank you for your work, how you're spending your days and your time and your energy. You're amazing. Well, I appreciate those kind words, and thanks so much for letting people know about the book, and uh, I thank you for your work as well every day yeah. on the radio. Yeah, John Stone Street has been my guest. And the book is Life, Marriage, and Religious Liberty. You can pre-order it right now. It's released June 4th, so be your first on the block to have it. It'll be the envy of all your neighbors. We're going to take a short break and be back with more in just a minute.
You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. I could listen to that all afternoon. Joanne Pittman is my guest in the studio. She's, uh, she's an author. She's the editor of China Source, and she spent 28 years working in China as an English teacher, a language student, program director, and a cross-cultural trainer for organizations and businesses engaged in China. That, my friends, is commitment. She also uh, taught Chinese at the University of Northwestern here and Chinese culture and communications at Wheaton College and Taylor University. She's authored uh, Survival Chinese Lessons and The Bells Are Not Silent, Story of Church Bells in China, which is a fascinating book. And Joanne, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You know, we hear... Um, I just have to tell the listeners off, uh, we hadn't gone on yet, and I asked her about how are things in China, and she said, complicated. <laughs> I said, well, let's close in prayer, huh? <laughs> That's pretty much it. That's pretty much when it comes to <laughs> yeah. China, isn't it? Yes, you have to start there. Yeah, and why, why is that? Well, it's a country of 1.4 billion people. and uh, 1.4. 1, 1, 1.4 billion people. Yes. So that is obviously going to lead to a lot of complication. It has a long history. Um, and uh, it's a, a country that's rising in the world and trying to find its place in the world and uh, challenging some other structures. But I think just the, the sheer size of China makes it complicated. That yeah. We often say in a country of 1.4 billion people, anything you hear about China is true somewhere. But of it's course. It's not necessarily the, yeah. the, the whole uh, story. Yeah. How, how much do you think um, we in America know about China? I mean, we read headlines, and I see, you know, the, the tariffs that U.S. has put upon China, and I don't know. I, what do we make of that? What's the impact of that? The impact of the tariffs? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I don't under, I'm not an economist, so yeah. I think the, but I think the impact of the tariffs are going to be, you know, our, our can openers here in the U.S. are going to get more expensive because it's just a tax. It's an import tax. Mm-hmm. And so when Target buys things from China... They have they have to pay the tax. So it's right. not that China's paying the tax. It's most mostly that we are. So I think an immediate impact for Americans is that the prices of imported um, goods from China, which are, are a lot, um, will probably go up. And um, but it but then the the other result is that the reason that that they're put on is because um, be, the belief that the pressure of having the higher taxes on goods that China exports. Um, will cause buyers to maybe go other places and potentially harm China as well. And so it's it's sort of a tactic to try to get them to, you know, come around to, to negotiate on various trade mm-hmm. issues. 28 years working and, and living there. Would you remind us all what China is like politically and spiritually? Sure. Politically, China is a one-party state. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is in power, and it's mm-hmm. been in power since 1949. And uh, they hold all political power in China. They do not tolerate any opposition parties. So it's a one-party state. It's an authoritarian state where the, like I said, the party cannot be challenged and it's a very authoritarian political system. Uh, What the party says, you know, that's what happens. Um, Spiritually, I would say it's it's very complicated as well. Yeah, once again, that word complicated. complicated. Um, It's very complicated. The Chinese Communist Party officially espouses atheism and so anybody that joins the Communist Party has to, you know, kind of um, swear atheism. Atheism is actually taught in the schools. It's not that, you know, they just say, you know, 
you can't believe in religion. They actually actively teach um, atheism. Mm -hmm. That said, um, traditional Chinese culture has a lot of spiritual components to it. Traditional Chinese ancestor worship and belief in the spirit realm um, is, is still very strong in the countryside. Buddhism would probably be the largest religion in terms of the numbers of people who, who would claim to be Buddhist. And um, they're also Taoists, which is a, um, an indigenous Chinese religion. And there are Muslims in China, about 10 million Muslims, and then Protestant Christians and, and Catholic Christians. So China has five religions that they give legal status to. Christianity is probably for the last 20 years has been the fastest growing. And mm -hmm. so you have nobody knows the number of Christians in China. The government says about 30 million. High, high estimates are 100 million, so it's probably in between there, maybe 50 to 70 million Christians. Mm -hmm. When you talk about teaching atheism, what would be the support materials for that? Uh, they would use a lot of uh, Darwin. Darwin? Yeah, yeah. Evolution and, you know, man comes from monkeys and things right. like that. There, there, there is no God. It's all materialist um, uh, philosophy. Mm -hmm. And when you, um, as, a, as a person who has worked in China and led many to Christ... When they start to hear the gospel, um, they must just get so excited. I, at first, I think it's puzzling because, you know, because atheism is taught mm -hmm. in the schools and that's kind of like what everybody starts out with unless unless they come from a family where there's religious practice. Um, the gospel presentation is a little bit different because you can't really come in and say, you know, Jesus loves you and died on the cross for mm -hmm. your sins, or God loves you and died, you know, God loves you and sent his son, because they don't believe in God. So a lot of times in sharing the gospel, you have to go back and start with um, addressing the question of, is there no, is there a God or not? Because if you don't believe that there's a God, hearing God loves you is like you telling me Santa Claus loves me. It mm -hmm. doesn't have any meaning. And so you have to start back at, is there a God? And And you look at evidence of that and you uh, begin to wrestle with that, and then then you move from there into, okay, who is God? What is he like? What is the purpose? Yeah. Things like that. But when God places eternity in our hearts, doesn't that instantly make us restless in search of him? I think for a lot of people it does. I, for a lot of people it does. But, you know, if you're, if you're in an environment where you're just told one thing that God does right. not exist, breaking through that barrier um, is not easy for a lot of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. Now, when we, uh, not to get back to the political stand um, that China takes, but there has been, a, has there been not some trends towards democracy in China lately? Have there, have there been trends to, I would say no. No, okay. For some <laughs> um, reason I thought maybe there was. Well, I think if you if you go back over the last, you know, 70 years, China the, in October, they're going to be celebrating as uh, the 70th anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic of China, okay. which is the communists coming to power. The first 30 years were really bad, a lot of persecution, the party establishing its control. Um, during, the, during the 60s and 70s, again, there was uh, the government trying to get religion out. It was under Mao, so he was really, he was really a dictator. He ruled like an emperor. Mm -hmm. The last 20 years have seen a lot more openness and a lot more space for civil society with religion growing and people having more freedoms, the freedom, I'm, I'm not going to go so far as to say freedom of speech, but people having a lot more space to function in their lives without political interference. Mm -hmm. um, is that more democracy? I don't think so. Yeah, because democracy is like, do they have a say in the government? Right. And, no, they don't. Yeah. So, Joanne, I would love for you to paint some pictures for our listeners about 
what it is looks like um, in terms of the urban life and the rural life in China. I mean, there's got to be such a incredible difference between those two. Yes. Urban China and rural China are very, very different. And right now the population is split about 50-50. When I went to China in 1984, 80% of the population lived in the countryside and 20% lived in the cities. Now that's 50-50. So there's been a massive migration of people into the cities or reclassification of rural areas into urban into urban districts. Uh, Chinese cities, if you look at Beijing or Shanghai, mm-hmm. they, these are modern, innovative cities. When you, If you were to visit Shanghai, you would look around and, and see the gleaming skyscrapers, the technology, and I can see why people would go and say the West has no chance. I mean, these are amazing, world-class, wealthy, innovative cities. And then you can, you know, with Starbucks on every corner, and, and you can get in your Maserati car and drive two hours out of Shanghai and be in a village um, where people are living fairly uh, um, lifestyles that wouldn't be that different from maybe 50 or 60 years ago, except they have a cell phone and a television and they might Mm -hmm. have a car as well. So there's a huge disparity and there's a lot of wealth in the cities and a lot of poverty in the countryside. Mm -hmm. When you were living over there, what, where were you living and how were you living and what color was your Maserati? Well, I had a black bicycle. Okay. <laughs> Later on in, uh, you know, as things got better in China, I had a, I had a pink bicycle. But, oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I lived in three different cities in China, in one in central China called Zhengzhou, and that was back in the 80s when there were no cars and we just rode black bicycles and mm-hmm. everybody wore their little mouse suits. Um, then I lived in the northern city of Chongchun in the 90s when things were beginning to change and become more prosperous and uh, and um, I had a beautiful white bicycle then. <laughs> nice. I never did drive a car in China. And then I also, then for 15 years I lived in Beijing, and I was there during during the 2008 Olympics. Mm-hmm. Exciting! That must have been yeah, quite exciting. Yeah, it was. It was really, um, it was really exciting to see the city sort of transform itself over a period of about 10, 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. What are um, some of the social trends going on in China right now? Some of the social trends, um, well, one is that, that the, the, the party is beginning to sort of reestablish its control over society. So they're putting more restrictions on things like media that had been loosened for a while. Um, but I think, I think one, of the, one of the big things, uh, two really interesting things, is one is the um, pl- proliferation of social media. Mm-hmm. China has a very robust social media a platform called WeChat, which everybody is on. And it's really taken over because WeChat is more than just, you know, here's pictures of my friends and you know, here's what I'm doing. It's really become an ecosystem. So everybody, they use it for paying things, pay, you know, really? for purchasing. They link it to their bank account. And so when I was in Beijing last November and I went just to a supermarket or to a market, you know, and I would pull out my cash and they would look at me like, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, why don't you use your phone to pay? And I'm mm-hmm. like, well... I said, I'm from the United States. We're a little back. We're a little behind the times on this. So the the the, the way in which the smartphone and social media has completely um, taken over and and become ubiquitous in life. And then um, the other thing I would say is that that the government is developing this social credit system where they're um, they have different behaviors and what they what they say they want to do is build a culture of trust. You know, so if you do a bad thing. 
in society will take points off. And then when you go to buy an airplane ticket, you know, you're not going to be able to buy it. And it's because we have a credit system here, but it's based on our, cons- our consumption patterns. Mm-hmm. And China doesn't have that. So they're trying to build this thing called social credit to try to get to, to try to create a culture of trust uh, wow. based on. But unfortunately, it can also be used by the government. It's like, well, if we don't like you, then we can use this to, um, you know, to make life difficult for you. What kind of behavior would create um, demerits in your file? Um, misbehaving on the subway, like when I was in Beijing in I November. I do that all the time. <laughs> when I was I, in I Beijing. I thing over yeah, there. <laughs> uh, there were all these signs on the subway, you know, you're not allowed to eat and all these rules that you're not supposed to do on the subway. And so if you do those, then you're going to get demoted. And there's cameras everywhere. There isn't an inch in a major city. There isn't an inch of space outside your home when you're not on a, some sort of a surveillance camera. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, yeah, so not paying your bills, not paying your taxes, things uh-huh. like that. So they're developing this or they're it's, yes. it's already in practice? Both. It's okay. in practice somewhat. It's they're, they're in the process of developing it. And it's being rolled out and used um, in various places, in, in different ways in various places. When you talk about Big Brother keeping an eye on you, whoa. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty spooky. <laughs> yeah, because you really don't go anywhere where you're not on reviewable footage, right? Never. Not from the time you're outside your door of your apartment, because there's going to be surveillance cameras in the hallway of an apartment building, you know, for security cameras, mm-hmm. like, you know, like you've got here. Um, and then when you're on the street, there's multiple cameras. I was standing in a subway in Shanghai in November, and I just stood in one spot, and I looked around, and I counted 26 cameras. Wow. So I think that's a major, you know, social trend. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Joanne Pittman's my guest, and she is the senior vice president of China Source, has 28 years working in China as an English teacher and a language student, program director. She's got quite a resume. We'll take a little break and be right back with Joanne in 90 seconds. You're listening to Bill Arnold's Encore presentation, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. I have Joanne Pittman in studio. She's senior vice president of China Source. She's been to China. Well, she's worked there 28 years. And she has got a uh, love for adventure. She just returned from Newfoundland. Newfoundland? Newfoundland. Yeah. 5,760 miles. She traveled with her dear, darling 92-year-old mother. And that, some other siblings, right? My sister and brother. Sister and brother. Yeah, awesome. So, um, three week trip. You, you've got you got adventure in your blood. I do. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's go back to China because I think we all fill in the blanks if we don't have good information. And you, having spent so much time there, um, in 2019, our our churches and pastors um, still facing the kind of persecution that we think they are. That's a. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> That's your go-to. That's my go-to uh, your, answer. Your go-to right? answer, which I love. Um, I would say over the last over the last twenty years, there's been a lessening of persecution and harassment by the government. The government gave um, civil society more space, and that included religion. So you saw the proliferation of um, urban house churches and public churches, and that were not registered. And there was a there was sort of a reluctant tolerance from the government towards. Um, Protestant Christianity and the proliferation of house churches and things. But um, under the current leadership, um, that tolerance is being, is being 
dialed back, mm-hmm. and they're increasingly viewing um, unread people who worship in unregistered Christian uh, churches as a potential threat, or the the existence of these churches. And so the last, let's say, the last year really has seen an uptick in um, pressure and harassment and sometimes persecution of particularly high profile. Um, house church leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of a mixed bag. You know, you, we some of the high-profile Christian leaders in China have been detained and are, you know, jailed and their churches shut down. But at the same time, there are still um, probably thousands of smaller house churches that have not been affected. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a... But it's definitely tightening um, over the last year. Does the Chinese government allow for any churches? Yes. Okay. Yes. If you go into every major city in China, you're going to find... Um, fairly large churches. That, and are there cameras in there? Oh, yes. Well, they monitor everything? There's, if you're outside of your apartment, there's, no, <laughs> there's cameras in every restaurant. Um, you know, part of it is for security. So, so there are registered churches that are sanctioned by the government, and um, you can find those in every, in every city in China. Some of them are quite large. Um, I attended one in Beijing that had 5,000 people every Sunday morning, and... Um, and so, so Christianity is is a legal religion. It's it's legally sanctioned, and there are churches. And then there are there are unregistered churches um, that there's more of those, and those are the ones that the government views with with a little bit with more suspicion mm-hmm. because they're they can't be they're they're outside of their control. Yeah, have the challenges that church church has been facing been the same for decades and decades? Well, I think, you know, I, th- I think so, because in China, we tend to want to kind of put on, when we look at the church in China, we want to focus on the, the political lens. And, and I think there's a false assumption in the West that the biggest challenge for the church in China is the political system. Is, you know, it's the government mm-hmm. and the pressures and the rules and the, the, the attempt for control and all of that. And that certainly is a problem. I want to say that that's not. But... For Christians in China, I think um, in addition to government pressure, there are other more, shall we say, normal issues and challenges facing the church. Like how do you do church governance? How do you raise your how do you raise your children to be Christians in a very secular environment? How do you how do you conduct business um, as a Christian in a very corrupt business environment? How do you um, how do you get theological training? Mm-hmm. So, so th- there's a lot more normal challenges than we hear about. Um, we, we in the West tend to assume that, oh, if the government would stop bothering them, then everything would be fine. But the, the government, um, government harassment, government pressure is just part of the environment of China, whether you're a Christian or not. And so that's just... everybody. It is. It can be very exhausting. I mean, the Chinese government must be exhausted (laughs) for the work they got to do. Right, and and the people can be exhausted because you're always like, okay, you know, is this is this going to get me into trouble? Yeah. And and I often say that in China, the the boundaries. It's like the government says you can, you can practice your religion, but we get to set the boundaries. You can believe what you want. We get to set the boundaries, but those boundaries move. They're rubber and invisible. Okay. So you're you're always trying to figure out what can I do, what can I not do, and. And um, so I think for the church, it's 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 more in addition to the government pressure, the challenges from the government. It's a lot of more normal stuff that would be very familiar to us in our churches here. Mm. How do you train your children? How do you have a how do you have a, a Christian, a godly 
family, a godly relationship? How do you find a Christian spouse? Sure. Um, and and most Christians day to day are dealing are dealing with that as much as the government. Mm-hmm. So twenty eight years of living there, did you ever get yourself in trouble? Because you're you seem like kind of a troublemaker. <laughs> I no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I, I know that was going right, to be the well, answer? Well, because <laughs> well, because I you know I I wanted to stay there and exactly. and so you know. Um, yeah, we 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 tried to know where the boundaries were and stay inside of them. Yeah, well, um, Joanne, what are some of the things that absolutely amaze you about Christianity in China? I think it's the growth. I think it's the it's the um, um, in in 1949 when the communists came to power, there were an estimated number of Protestant Christians was about 700,000. And that was after 150 years of missionary wow. work. Okay, seven hundred thousand. Right, and then from 19 that was 1949. In 1949 to 79, China closed down. They tried to drive religion out of Chinese. That was the era of really, really intense bad persecution. But by 1979, when China began to open up and, and survey, um, their surveys were taken. The estimate was 10 million. Whoa. 700,000 to 10 million during the time of intense persecution. Wow. And then from 79 to now, let's 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 pick 70 million. Wow. That's that's, that's amazing. That's let's pick 71. that's kind of book of acts Just type. to be more exciting. Sure. <laughs> so 700,000 to to 70 million in a space of I'm not good at math. Yeah. Uh, in a short time. A bunch of years. In a bunch of years. <laughs> um under government harassment and in, in for at least 30 years of that intense persecution. That's so cool. Um, what about the kids? What, what, what are the, what issues are the kids facing over there? Chinese youth? Yeah. Christian youth or yeah. anybody? Um, yeah. The same as, the same as here, peer pressure, materialism, spending too much time on their, on their phones. Um, young people in China also spend a lot of time studying. They have a very rigorous educational system. Mm-hmm. So by the time you hit, by the time you hit tenth grade, all you do is study. So even Christian parents, they're, they they struggle with, you know, I can't I can't bring my kid to church because he's got to study really all the time. I mean, it's it's that intense. So so the pressure of the educational system is really really intense on young people in China. Wow. And what does the school year consist of? Is it year round or is it? No, the do they school get a little year, summer break. They get a shorter summer break, but they get a longer winter break. It goes from around September 1st to around the middle of January, and then they get a month off for Chinese New Year, and then they go until usually the end of June. Mm-hmm. So it's two months summer break and one month in the winter. Mm-hmm. What would be some prayer requests, prayer needs for our brothers and sisters in China? Well, I think right now, um, you know, they're adjusting to a new political environment after about 20 years of things getting more open and, and they're having a little bit more space to function that space is beginning to shrink. And there's a lot of Christians who didn't experience a tighter or a more persecution environment so that they would be wise in how to, how to, um, to handle that and that they would be able to withstand the increasing pressures that are coming on them. I would say also um, for, for the church, uh, Christians, as they deal with the everyday, everyday issues that Christians everywhere face that mm-hmm. I mentioned you know how do we how do we live as salt and light in a, in our communities? Mm-hmm. And Joanne, you wrote a great book called "The Bells Are Not Silent: Stories of Church Bells in China." We've only got ninety seconds. Can you share a little story from that book? 
Yes. Um, I stumbled across a church bell in uh, southern China in 2012, and it had an inscription on it, and it's, it said that the bell was from a church in Kansas uh, from 1863, and I decided I wanted to uh, discover the story of that bell, and in the process discovered numerous church bells in China and that they have a story to tell about God's faithfulness to the church in China. Uh, how does a bell get from Kansas to China? Well, we think it... Uh, I think it went in 1913, so it would have gone by train across the United States and then by ship, and then Who it would have been carried it? up the river. Yeah, I mean, um, Baptist missionaries in Sichuan. Oh, it was it was donated by a church in Kansas, and they had a missionary in in Sichuan, in a Sichuan province, and they wanted to send this bell to her support her missionary work. I guess. Oh, that's fantastic! And then they. But it's re- a, it's a story of God's faithfulness, and and the bells are just the vehicle to tell that story. Yeah. And chinasource.org is a good place to go learn about all things China. Yes, you can come and learn about the church in China. We, we go deeper and broader and wider and than I bet you most would, headlines. You would encourage someone to go be a missionary, wouldn't you? I would encourage somebody to go serve in China, yeah. yes. <laughs> and Joanna's saying that with a gigantic smile on her face because that was her work for 28 years. And Joanne, thanks for coming in the studio. It's so nice to see you. Your stories are fascinating and your life is amazing. Thank and you. You've I'm, said I'm yes. You've said yes to God, though. And look what he's done. Do it. Cool. Yeah. Joanne Pittman's been my guest. We'll take a little break. And then uh, we're full steam into hour two. Can't wait. Look forward to it. Be back in a few minutes. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.